Welcome to Women of the Military Podcast, episode 178. And I want to say thank you to Savio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this panel episode. This podcast episode would not be possible without the support of Savio Coding Bootcamp. I did this podcast interview because I wanted to learn more about what is happening on Capitol Hill and how I can help advocate for women veterans by supporting the many women on Capitol Hill that are working to make changes both at the legislative level and on the ground within the women veteran community. And I'm excited to have had this conversation with these three amazing women, Tahin Montoya, Ginger Miller, and Rachel Johnson. They each have worked in different ways related to the government. And I just am excited to not only talk about what they've done and what they are doing for the military community, but I'm also just fascinated by how they are working to make changes and do things in different ways and to push through barriers and learn how to move things forward when it seems like things are stuck still. So I really hope you enjoy this conversation about what it is like to be a woman veteran on Capitol Hill. And hopefully you can walk away with this and think about how you can make an impact in your own neighborhood and help women veterans have a stronger voice in the community. Women of the Military podcast would like to thank Sabio Coding Bootcamp for sponsoring this week's episode. Sabio Coding Bootcamp is a top-ranked coding bootcamp that is 100% dedicated to helping smart and highly motivated individuals become exceptional software engineers. Visit their website at www.sabio.la to learn how you may be able to use your GI Bill of Benefits to train at Sabio. Your tuition and monthly BAH stipend may be paid during your training period. They are also 100% committed in helping you find your first job in tech. So don't forget to head over to www.sabio.la to learn more. And now let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome, ladies. I'm really excited to have you here for this panel. I'm a little nervous uh, about doing it, but I'm really excited to hear from all you. I'm so honored that you all were able to take time out of your busy schedules to come and talk about what it's like to either work on or around or advocate on Capitol Hill. So let's get started by introducing each one of you, and we'll start with Ginger. Thank you so much, Amanda, for putting together this panel. I am super excited to be here. My name is Ginger Miller. I am the president and CEO of Women Veterans Interactive. I'm a longtime advocate for women veterans, and I strongly believe that women veterans need our own voices on Capitol Hill, our distinct voices. And most recently, through my advocacy work, I was appointed by President Joe Biden to the USO Board of Governors. And again, I'm honored to be here. Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Lieutenant Rachel Johnson in the U.S. Coast Guard and Marine Corps veteran, and I started my advocacy work as a member of the 2018 to 2020 Military Officers Association of America, currently serving advisory council, consisting of 12 members, and that's where I've got my start working on around Capitol Hill as volunteer work to advocate for our military veterans and their families. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you, Amanda, for having me here today. I am Tahina. I'm a doctoral candidate um, at Georgetown University, and I'm focusing on women, peace, and security efforts. I served 12 years active duty in the Air Force as an intel analyst and just recently transitioned as a United States Air Force reservist, 
where I work at DIA in the America's Transregional Threat Center. But more importantly, I just recently wrapped up my fellowship with the House Committee of Veteran Affairs, where I served as the Women Veteran Policy Fellow. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here, ladies. I'm really excited to talk to you and learn a little bit more about what you guys are doing and what you've done and what the different types of legislation you've gotten to be a part of. So, Ginger, I was watching you on LinkedIn and I saw this announcement and that you are, I don't even know what you're doing, but it seems really cool. So can you talk about how it all came out that you got selected to be working with President Biden and the role that you're filling? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's kind of weird that you would ask me that because the role really came about because of what I really feel women veterans deserve. And and I know what I can bring to the table and I know where I'm better suited. So I did campaign um, with the Bidens, you know, for him to to win the presidency. And I was offered an interview by the White House for a job at the VA. I did interview for that first job and didn't get it. And then I kind of started feeling like, okay, you know what, I'm probably a better advocate for women veterans on the outside. And when I say outside, I mean like in the community, in the nonprofit community, in the veteran space, because, you know, a lot, anybody can go on the inside, but it takes a very strong person to do what I've done over the course of now 11 years on the outside and to really get that needle moved for women veterans. So I was offered another interview and I believe that this one was for me. It was at the VA again. I don't know if I should mention the, the well, you know, it, it was for the, the director for the Center of Women Veterans, which most people felt was a perfect fit for me. You know, when you look at everything that I've done during the second interview, I kind of backed out and I said, "Okay, I can't do this because, you know, while this may be the job for me, I'm not for the job right now. And, you know, the folks were kind of shocked by that. But I said, I can really be a better ally to the VA on the outside than the inside, because, number one, I'm a moving shaker. I get stuff done. I'm going to go up to the line. I'm probably going to erase the line if a woman veteran's life is in the balance. You, you know what I'm saying? And at the VA, you know, they're a great institution, but they are an institution. And, and for someone who has been out here for 10 years, you know, I don't do the work that I do for accolades. I do it because the work needs to be done. And so I said to them, I said, listen, I, I just can't do it. You know, I said, you know, if I had a choice to do anything, I would take some type of presidential appointment on the outside. Three weeks later, I got a email from the White House stating that the president was considering me for an appointment to the USO Board of Governors. So that's how it happened. And I was shocked. I'm like, do I really have that much power to say, like to will a thing? And it happens. But I just feel that the USO, being on the Board of Governors, you know, alongside folks like General Casey and all these other, like, I was completely blown away. I think I'm one of two or maybe three women veterans, you know, which which I think is amazing. But to come in as a presidential appointee, you know, that gives me a lot of, it gives me a lot of satisfaction knowing that, I can go to the USO and make a change, still have the opportunity to advocate and serve military, you know, active duty members and their families, but at a high level. So for me, I'm still in shock, (laughs) but I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity. I think it's great. I'm so excited. And it's been fun to watch you on LinkedIn and the different things that you've got to be a part of at signing for different events. And I know you got to participate in some of the stuff that happened in Christmas time. So it's really cool to see a woman veteran who is out there and making waves in the community for women veterans at the top with, you know, the advisory role to the president. I think it's really exciting. And so it's really cool. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amanda. And, you know, I think the time is long overdue because it's over 2.2 million women veterans. And I don't think we have begun 
to even reach the tip of the iceberg. Like it, it, we have so much work to do to be recognized by this country that we serve. You know, and, and that's why I'm really excited to, to be on this panel, because I do have some things, you know, to say in reference to Capitol Hill and some things that we're working on at WVI once we get to that portion of it. Yeah, that's why I wanted to do this, because I, I agree with you that we're just at the tip of the iceberg and there's still so much work to do. So let's move on to Rachel. And we did a series in 20. Was that 2020? That was a while ago with Moa. And we talked about uh, what Moa does and how they advocate. So I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to learn more about Moa and the work that they're doing. But let's talk about your role as a volunteer and on the advisory committee. Is that what you're on? The stint runs for two years. So I was voted into the currently 12 member currently serving advisory committee where we had representation from all of the branches uh, at the time. And it was a really great opportunity to work with other active duty. And we had some reservist members on there of range of officer ranks that we were all be able to come to the table and be a sounding board for our different rank structures and then also for the different services. And then we would come together and for the annual adv- advocacy and action where in the past up until 2019, we physically went to Capitol Hill and we took two days and we went office to office and met with all 535 voting members or their military aides. And we would have came up with three topics every year that was important to veterans, family and the active duty members, our reservists, all the way from the most junior enlisted, our E1s, our privates and airmen, soldier, all the way up to our admirals and generals and how it affected different topics. Um, I think it was a great opportunity to still leverage my sounding board with the active duty members and their families and, you know, to be able to talk with spouses and know what is what issues they deal with between PCS season, job finding, childcare, housing, medical. They're really important issues, but also for our veterans as well, because when you serve, you wear that uniform for four years or 40, we still um, want to be able to be a voice for everyone that's put on uniform or has supported someone that's put on uniform. So I've been very honored. And now I am the active duty liaison for the Alamo chapter here in San Antonio for our local MOA chapter. So I'm still able to stay involved in the community. And we also work with the 36 Texas U.S. representatives to work on issues and do advocacy for Texas-specific plights that may face our military with all of the different bases. So it's been an honor, and I'm glad that I can continue to support and be in this role. So. Yeah, that sounds great. And it's really cool to hear not only are you involved in the government at the federal level, but also at the state level. And there's so many different opportunities and ways to serve while serving. And I love how Ginger's talking about the veteran community. And Tahing, you said that you were part of a fellowship. So how did that come about? And what was that experience like? Yeah, so um, it really came about during, well, for those of in the audience who are still serving, um, when you hear like the term transition, it sounds very expedient, right? And it sounds like it's just 
one day you wake up and technically, yes, technically you wake up and the next day you're either a reservist or a veteran. And so it does sound, it's expedient and quick in that regard, but the actual transition to become a veteran, like to get yourself in the right headspace, it's actually a long, a long process and it takes, it can be at times a roller coaster. And so I say that to answer your question is I was in that process. Um, thankfully, I was able to use my post 9-11 GI Bill to get into a doctorate program at Georgetown. And I was wrapping up my coursework and, you know, looking and I'm just like, okay, where is this going to lead? And kind of taking steps to progress towards whatever happens after the military, but not really knowing what. I knew that I was studying women, peace and security. I was passionate about it. I've been advocating it for it for a while. The Air Force has barrier analysis working groups. We have seven of them. And I always try to shout that out because I do think it's important to recognize that the Air Force has formally established that. And one of them, well, the two that I'm involved with are the the Women Initiatives Team and then the Hispanic Empowerment and Advancement Team. And we have social media, of course. And it was through the WIT that I saw a post looking for a Women Veteran Policy Fellow to support the Women Veteran Task Force at the House Committee of Veteran Affairs. And this is going to lead to another one of my points where I immediately thought I was like, either I don't qualify, I don't have legislative experience, I don't know if they have, you know, if they're going to accept the fact that I'm stationed overseas because I'm currently in Panama um, because my husband's serving as a naval attache. And I really slept on it and kind of just like briefly kind of threw my hands up in the air. And I'm like, man, I really wanted to do that, but I just don't think it's going to work out. And then I tried to really, I always, I'm really quick to promote, don't close doors on yourself. And so I was like, Tahina, you really have to live up to what you, you know, you got to walk the walk. And so I reached out to the point of contact and just said, hey, listen, I think I'm qualified. I really want to do this, but my situation's a little bit unique. And the response I got was, we're looking for the right candidate and we're willing to work with the right candidate. And so I ended up applying and kind of applied and kind of forgot forgot about it and was like, okay, I did my part. I applied and I put forth my best effort and I'm living up to what I tell others to do. And then I got a call back for an interview and, and it just happened to work out. And they, I was able to do it mostly virtual. I was also in person occasionally. And I do think that Although there's definitely a lot of negative things that have come from COVID, trying to be the eternal optimist and seeing the positive, you know, the glass half full. One of the things that I want to put out there to the audience, in addition to don't close the door on yourself, which I almost did, is also in the space that we are now, I feel like a lot of organizations are more open to the idea of accepting more non-traditional candidates, including candidates who want to telework or be exclusively on virtual in the virtual space. And thankfully, due to COVID, a lot of organizations have been able to kind of have since been able to adjust and adapt to that. And so really don't close the door on yourself. If you see an opportunity and you think it's a little bit of a reach, let them close the door on you. And this was one of the many examples that I've had, thankfully, in my career, where I almost closed the door on myself and I reminded myself to give myself a shot and it worked out. And so that's a really long answer to your question, but it really worked out. And I will be forever thankful for the opportunity because it was, it has been a great, wonderful experience. And I've really met so many wonderful people and so happy to be, to say that I was part of the House Committee of Veteran Affairs. That's really great advice. And I think that is part of why I wanted to do this panel because I know there's so much going on 
on Capitol Hill and around Capitol Hill and across the nation. And I just wanted to open a conversation to talk about what women are doing to show that there are so many different opportunities and ways to get involved and maybe to think outside the box. So I'm really excited that you're here. And I really think that advice is so important to not discount yourself and to try and do something even if you think it may not work out. There's so many different opportunities and ways to do things that you might not think are possible. So let's keep the conversation moving. And my next question is, Ginger, what's the most important piece of legislation you've been involved in and why? WBI hasn't been involved with a lot. We were involved with the Momnibus bill that just passed. You know, we definitely endorsed that to make sure that, you know, women veterans of color is getting the the proper care that they need during childbirth. But, you know, that's very important. I've been an advocate for women veterans, but I haven't been as active on the Hill as I am now, because I'm the type of person that if everybody's doing it, you have 500 people doing it, 500 people pushing, then I would rather like kind of look back and see what's going on. If it's something that I don't strongly believe in, then I'm not going to be a part of it. And not to say that I haven't believed in everything, like for instance, with the Deborah Sampson Act, it's great, right? That was like monumental, right? It took years to get it done. Well, guess what? We're not feeling that on the ground right now. You know, we have a woman veteran who's been in a hotel in Florida, homeless with two dogs, and because she's 100%, nobody can help her. The VA programs, nobody can help her because she's 100%, right? So guess what? If we run out of funding, she's going back into the woods in her car with her dogs. So we need to do something a little bit different. And, you know, because I am a trendsetter and and I just believe in doing things that's going to make the impact where we can feel it on the ground. One of the things I'm working with now with a couple of offices on Capitol Hill is to do a Women Veterans Empowerment Act, where the things that's already being done, if they're not working, we don't want to just delete that all together, but let's find ways to enhance that to make sure that these bills, like there's so many bills going on, but yet and still women veterans are homeless. They're being raped in the military. Like nothing has stopped. You know, how do we stop the bleeding and how do we really take care of these women who have served and sacrificed for our country? You know, one or two things have to happen. One or two things are going to happen. Number one, we're going to get a diff- some more acts and bills passed, right? To make sure that we're filling it boots on the ground immediately. Number two, a big thing that I'm pushing for, and I'm starting to get a little traction, is for the White House to create a task force for women veterans, because this way we'll feel that across the board. You know, when the White House speaks, everybody listens. And if Congress gets behind it, it's going to happen. So this way, you not only have the heads of organizations, right, but you also have women veteran nonprofits at the table so we can really tell you what we're seeing. And then another big pet peeve of mine with Capitol Hill is that they always have folks testifying about a population that they don't serve. You can't do that. It just doesn't make sense to me. And that means that as women veterans, our authentic voices are not being heard. Henceforth, we still have the issues. I did testify back in October, was it, Tahina? I think it was back in October, and it was monumental, right? And for me personally, I didn't think it was that big of a deal because I'm only telling you what I see every day. Go ahead, Tina. I think you're, you're saying something. I was just going to say that Ginger was part of the transition panel that we had with the House Committee of Veteran Affairs. And within the House Committee of Veteran Affairs, we're really making this push to try to diversify the panels and to make sure that these voices that Ginger is talking about are being heard. And so I reached out to her and she agreed to be on the panel and she was a rock star. She moved grounds and was everyone was like, who is that? We need more of her. 
And you're saying some good stuff, Tahina. She's saying that I, I moved some stuff. I, I shook up some stuff. And you know what? I did, right? And it was refreshing to be on a panel testifying with all women veteran organizations. And the Congress people that was there, they were moved because they had never really heard from us before, right? So if you always hear, and, and no pun intended, from DAV, American Legion, they don't, you can't say on one hand, women veterans are not going there, but then on the other hand, you can testify about us. You, you can't testify about something you've never lived. So, and, and I think that's why my testimony was so like, oh my God, like she's an Albert Einstein. I'm just telling you what I do, what, what, what we see every day on the ground. So I'm pushing for more of that. I'm pushing for women veterans to really take our place in the country that we serve, starting with Capitol Hill and starting with the White House. Ginger, I wholeheartedly believe and agree with what you're saying because I was blown away the first year I did advocacy in action and went to Capitol Hill and I'm going from office to office. They're saying an active duty female is coming in here to talk to me. This is not, you know, okay, I'm actually going to listen to her. And the number of times I heard it is refreshing. We haven't gotten an active duty female or female veteran. Normally, it's the spouse that comes with the retiree doing the advocacy work. And it was really humbling. I thought I'm just doing the right thing. I'm here. I want to help. I want to get the word out. We worked on some really great things. And even with the military health care reform, you know, things that aren't being talked about is women's health care and reproductive health, you know, infertilization, things that women in the military and our vet, women veterans are facing in the VA, you know, getting it out there. No, we need more women's health clinics that's available to us. And you know, we were talking about shutting down, you know, it's, it's halted right now, but hopefully ending it. The military treatment reform, you know, shutting down 50 healthcare sites, what's that going to do? You know, we already have a difficult time getting certain female, you know, related healthcare items addressed and the struggles that, you know, veterans, female veterans have to go through that I think, you know, it's very important that we are the voices of it. A man's going up there saying we need to form, you know, nothing gets it. Thank you. All, you know, there's strength in numbers, but I completely agree with you, Ginger, that going out there and being, you know, that's why I'm honored to have the opportunity to speak on behalf and alongside women veterans and service members, because I think that's where we're really going to push this ball across the goal and, and actually get things taken care of and addressed and into bills and backed by Congress and have the White House speak on our behalf, I think is a huge thing. You know, Rachel, I'm just so glad to hear you say that because earlier in my statement, and let me clarify, I believe in different things. Right. Than, than, than most people, because I see things a lot differently because I've, I've been boots on the ground. But until we have our authentic voices being heard, nothing is going to change. And for me, it's just like a no brainer. Like, I'm not going to go up to this bottle of Aquafina water and say, you know, you taste like a milkshake. Uh, how, you're not a milkshake. You, you just I don't know. And, and I guess for me, it's kind of frustrating because this is the reason why nothing has changed. So I'm like, OK, no, we need to do something a little bit different. I'm used to going against the grain. Like if people are going right, I'm going to go left. And then sooner or later, people are going to say, well, why is she always going to the left? What's happening over there? But if you fall in line with everybody else, 
I mean, you have a lot of organizations that have advocated for women veterans for years, but we still have the same issues. Oh, women veterans suffer, 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 but nobody comes up with these real solutions. And that's who we are at WVI. And that's why we've always been kind of like the weird group, but we're making the bigger impact. Yeah, you sometimes have to go against the grain and do things differently. That's one of the things I feel kind of with the podcast, my main mission is to help women join the military. And I'm really passionate about it because I think one of the ways that we can make things better for women is to have more women, but you can't have more women unless you recruit more women. So I'm trying to change that focus and trying to change the messaging. And because someone asked me, like, how do we get more women in leadership positions? I'm like, we get more women to join the military because then more women stay. And you can't just be like, well, just keep the few that we have and make them all stay. That's not feasible. And so I really love that you guys are both out there advocating and showing how important it is to get involved and to share your voice and how powerful it is. To your point, Amanda, I remember somebody said something to you on LinkedIn, like, why do you just always tell the good stories? And and see, my thing is this, we've got to change the narrative. Like right now it's three of us, Tahina is coming back and forth, but we all have great stories. I mean, I got a medical discharge, right? Rachel is still serving, you know, do your podcast the way that you want to do your podcast. But I think for so long as women veterans, because we haven't had that, the stronger voices up front, all we know is what's going on in the back. And all we hear is the bad stuff. Like even on my Women Veterans Interactive page, I don't post a lot of bad stuff. You post good stuff, you barely get a response. You post something that happened to somebody, you get a million likes. We've got to change the narrative of who we are as women veterans because we are still leaders. And once we do that, you know, I, I think what's going on inside the military will change as well. Absolutely. And it goes back to that, Amanda, what you were saying, the recruitment, but then also the retention. You know, there we have very, very strong women that get out of the military. And my whole thing is as long as you're still supporting your fellow sisters in arms or have served, then you're still doing your part, but be the voice. And to your point, Ginger, it doesn't all have to be bad. It's when we make light out of it, we're making positive changes. This negative thing happened and this is the positive way I'm going about trying to change so it doesn't happen to the next female. And then that goes into the recruitment and retention. And then once we get that cycle going, you know, that's where strength in numbers. So it's, you know, keeping that voice out there. And like I said, from that first time I went on Capitol Hill and here, a female, you coming in here and going, no, you just lit my fire. Even if for every year's advocacy and action, if I can take just a little time out of my day during that period and make a call or set up a time or send an email just to say, hey, we're here we're one of your constituents, and this is what's important to us. I agree. And, and, you know, going back to changing the narrative, my annual conference was called Women Veterans and Military Women Extravaganza for years. And then one of the things I started seeing was a lot of women who served and had leadership roles in the military, something happens during that transition where we feel that we're no longer leaders. And we just get out and lose it all. So I changed it to the Women Veterans Leadership and Diversity Conference. And, you know, things are starting to change, but we have to change the narrative. Somebody has got to, you know, take the hit for the team because, you know, for me, I didn't transition well. I was homeless when I got out of the military. So if, if anybody would tell me, okay, you're going to be homeless when you get out, but you're going to rise through all the ranks. I've served and volunteered on every level of government, right? As chairwoman for, for everything that I served on. And now to be a presidential appointee, like where's the fireworks guys? You know, I don't do it for the fireworks, but this is a big deal for a woman veteran, but it's almost like we don't get 
what we have earned as leaders in the country, almost like you want to sweep us under the rug, but we're not going under the rug. We're coming out. It's destigmatizing. A lot of the thing is as we then move up, you know, I've seen it. I'm still active duty, but I've seen it in uh, my peers and working through all of the different offices in MOA that to destigmatize the women veteran role and it's a positive thing. And these are the people that you want in leadership because we've proven ourselves to be leaders amongst the ranks. And when you think of who do you, who would you want on your side? A woman veteran, because we know how to get things done a lot of times. But I think it gets destigmatized. We need to destigmatize the veteran aspect of it. And I see women that are veterans and they don't put that at the forefront as a selling point. And I think that's where we're kind of some people are undercutting the momentum that we're making forward. So Ginger, kudos to you. You are amazing for the work that you are doing. And thank you for representing us. My, my pleasure. I, I don't know when you say that it lit a fire under you. My hashtag on Facebook is girl on fire. So I don't know. It, it's kind of like I get fires up under me like every day, all day, because it's, I just don't understand like why we don't get the respect that we have earned by serving our country, just like the men or just like the military spouses. There's so many different movements and so much funding for military spouse programs. But when you look at the women veteran programs, where's the, where's the women veterans programs? Do you understand? So, so there is a difference. And, and like I said, it's truly my honor to serve. And I don't know what else I will be doing. Like, I'm just so passionate about it. And I believe that we can get it done. There's also been a number of women veteran initiatives. And then they said, and spouses can come too. Those also, I think, Kaya's drama because if it's a women veteran program, it should be for women veterans only. And not the fact that we, most military spouses are women. That doesn't mean that we have the same problems, the same issues. Like our experiences are very different and you can't just shove us together. They don't have like veteran organizations. Then they say, oh, and if you're a male military spouse, then you can come too. And so that's kind of another disservice that I've seen because there are, there's a lot of military spouse focused things. And then when there's a women veteran focus, they're like, and spouses too. Right. But, you know, to piggyback off of that, and I see that Tahina is back, so that's great. One of the things I said on my testimony, I said, you know, this country has come together to advocate and to support the caregivers and the military spouses. And as the president CEO of Women Veterans Interactive, I'm calling this country to start taking care of women veterans. And Amanda, you said something that's so important. I've told folks this before. When you have a women veterans program, right, and they say, and military spouses, hold that thought. Hold it, right? But when you have a military spouse program, they never say and women veterans. Never. Why is that? Is it a double standard in this country? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? So this is what I meant when I said I don't always push for every bill because we have enough people doing that. What I'm pushing for is for us to stand up on our own two legs in this country and get the support that we have individualized and not mixed in with the military spouses. It's got to stop. Tegan, do you have anything you want to add? No, just to piggyback what uh, Ginger was saying and what um, I was alluding to earlier was that Ginger and I first met while I was the Women Veteran Policy Fellow on the House Committee of Veteran Affairs when I was doing a transition hearing. And, you know, we're looking, one of the good things I think of the House Committee of Veteran Affairs is we're really doing this push to diversify um, witnesses and people who come to kind of speak on behalf of others. And through research, 
I came across Ginger's name and I was like, I want her on our panel. And when I reached out to her, it was wonderful. We had an amazing conversation and she completely rocked the house and people left that meeting saying we need her and quoting her. And so it was, it's really great to see that our our paths are crossing again and um, wonderful to see Ginger and honored to be here with all all of you today. Yeah, when I was creating the panel, I was very cognizant of diversity. When I first started reaching out to people, a lot of the people were white women. And I was like, I don't want white women only on this panel, because then there's so many other people. And I want women veterans to see themselves and not just white women. And so that's something that was really thought conscious into creating this panel and the other panels that I've been working on. I don't mean to jump around, but I do think this is a perfect time to mention this. So one of the great things, I think one of the positive things of the House of Representatives is that they've established an Office of Diversity and Inclusion, which I think is wonderful. And they have published some statistics that of course I looked into in preparation for this podcast. And I was pleased to see that 55.8% of House of Representative members are women right? So that's great. And we can break into that. However, when you talk about racial numbers, when you're looking at the races, 69.9% are Caucasian. And so uh, other areas of improvement, right? So um, as far as the statistics I was just talking about, only 0.5% are non-binary and 0.2% are transgender. That's not really reflective of who we are as a country and what our country is made up of. And so I do think it's it's making progress. The House of Representatives is taking initiatives to, to progress and move towards diversification, which I think is important. But I definitely think there's a lot more work to do to make sure that people representing us in the House of Representatives and in Senate and in Congress in general are more reflective of who their population is. Yeah, it's a really important thing to have yourself represented. I've been learning a lot about representation and how much it matters because I'm a white woman. And so I've always seen myself in like Disney princesses. And it's been really interesting to have the different conversations that have happened over the last year to learn more about diversity and how important it is. I do have to give, in addition to the fact that the House of Representatives did establish the the Office of um, Diversity, I do think that I I would be remiss if I did not give a shout out to the House Committee of Veteran Affairs because we are one of the few that stood up the diversity council within our own committee. And what that did is trying to address these issues that we're talking about, about representation, about diversity, about making sure that it's more reflective of who we're trying to serve. And some of the initiatives that we led internally were making sure interns and our fellows were getting paid, making sure that there was a diversity statement that was included in the application process, making sure that questions about diversity and inclusion were at were asked during the hiring process. And also, as I mentioned earlier, with regards to how that would translate onto House floor is making sure that we had a more diverse set of witnesses. And I mean that in the whole entire gamut, right? So different regions of the country, organizations that served large populations and small populations, organizations that served minority ve- uh, veterans at large, Think of what that means, right? So LGBTQ+, English as a second language veterans, women vets. And so just really, really taking an initiative of improving diversity for like externally and internally, which I do think is worth noting and celebrating because I will say that we also did outreach internally to see how many committees are doing that. And 
while there's a lot of drive to want to start something up like that, uh, I want to say we were one of the ones that were more further along in the process. And so I'm very proud to have been part of that. And I think it's worth celebrating a little bit. Small wins, right? Small wins lead to big wins. So Absolutely. And I just want to piggyback on that. When you think about all of the racial inequalities that's happening in the military, you know, that really trickles down into the veteran space. Was you look at the number of women veteran organizations that's out there, we're far and few. Some of us pop up and go away because we don't get the support that we need. But as an African-American woman, I was just telling somebody before this podcast, like for me, I have to get up every day and fight to stay alive in this veteran and military space because you don't really see a lot of African-American founded and led nonprofit organizations, you know, and then when you, when you double woman veteran on top of that, like I said, you know, I've never been so like burnt out and it's, it's not even February. Like I, I've never had a year and it's only because we're working hard and we're getting things done. But I, I live for the day that women veteran organizations don't have to get up to fight. When you talk about diversity and inclusion, you know, we also have to be mindful that when it comes to the LGBTQ community, we can't lump women veterans into that either, you know, because that has happened. And I did challenge some folks on Capitol Hill and said, listen, if you're going to have new VSOs out here testifying, you know, you have all of these other groups, but I don't see one woman veteran organization. And if somebody is serving all, that's not the same because with, with WVI, we have members who are LGBTQ and they love WVI because we treat everybody fairly. Right. And as a woman, we still have something to offer these women in our organizations that are LGBTQ. So I just want people to be mindful that, you know, women veterans, we're really fighting to have our own individualized, authentic voice at the table. Kind of playing on that, I think what Ginger's touching on is intersectionality. Right. So there's so many components that make a person a whole and they overlap. Right. So you can be um, like myself. I'm a Latina. Right. First generation Colombian American. I'm a Latina. I am first generation of my family to be in the military. And so all those things start overlapping. And to generalize minority veterans as a whole, I recognize the importance of that, but you can't, there has to be a balance. You can't generalize too much and you can't silo them too much. And so there, it's a very tricky balance, but it's equally as important to recognize that there are very, there are very distinct differences and you do not approach one minority group, the solution to a problem of one minority group, the the way you would all, right? Addressing one issue does not address all the issues. You can't negate one group because of another. You know what I'm saying? Because until the day comes that women veterans, nonprofit organizations are taken seriously as VSOs, like we still going to have a lot of work to do because like what you're seeing as one group boots on the ground is not what I'm seeing as a woman veteran nonprofit boots on the ground because the women are not going there. They're coming to WVI, you know, when they're going through a domestic violence situation or they're going to be evicted or they need help with the transition. So it's kind of like, you know, if we look at the groups who are doing work Versus uh, advocacy is great because strong voices are awesome, but we're advocates too. And we, I, but I think we're a different type of advocate because we are boots on the ground. So both advocates are important. And I wonder if there's a way that there could be more cross collaboration between the different groups so that there can be more voices heard and to leverage what we have already in place. I'm going to kind of go out on a limb and kind of segue, I guess, a little bit into what a potential issue is that I've increased, I've noticed more and more is that we don't know what we don't know, right? So if the DOD, if the government is not collecting the right data, 
it's not going to be reflective of who we are trying to serve and who we are, right? Because as veterans, that includes us. And so if you're only asking people to check a certain box and they don't see themselves reflected in that box and you can paint it whatever color, whether it's gender, whether it's race or ethnicity, I still don't know what boxes to check when they ask me about my race and ethnicity. I identify, I'm a Latina, I'm a Hispanic. I don't understand why I have to put a box if I'm a Caucasian Latina. That doesn't make any sense to me. And so like the, the differences between race and ethnicity, I don't get it. I just know that I don't see myself reflected in any of those boxes. And so what that translates to is inaccurate data, which means programs are being developed and budgets are being allocated that are not serving the correct population and are not addressing key issues. And so one of the ways to address what you were saying, Amanda, is let's get at the sources. How are we collecting this data? Is the data we collecting reflective of the actual population? Are we asking the right questions? Because if we're not asking the right questions and the right answers aren't being provided, we are never going to be serving the people that need to be served. Yeah, the Blue Star Families does a survey every year, which has a bunch of great information. But when I first took it, it told me I had to decide if I was a military spouse or a veteran, not both. And when I was telling someone about it, they were like, you shouldn't have to choose because you can't answer the questions as either or because you're not either or you're both. And so I think that's another great example of like, You can't force people to choose one or the other like they're a person. And me being a veteran and a military spouse has a huge impact on how I view the military community as both a spouse and a veteran. And you can't expect. So that's a really good example. And they've changed that since. And that also translates to something that we were working on in the House Committee of of Veteran Affairs is is not only the making sure that the data that is being captured is accurate, but to my point earlier, what it translates to is programs that aren't as effective. And what I'm going to bring up, which is kind of like a soapbox that I stand on, is the transition program, TAP. And Ginger knows this because we had a hearing on it is, well, I mean, I feel like I could go on forever on that subject. But I just think that the program has to adapt and change and update to reflect who, again, who are they trying to serve? And it is the one opportunity, the one established opportunity. There are plenty of opportunities, but the one established opportunity to really get at service members who are becoming veterans and our inability to really build that program to what it can be is failing veterans. And I think part of that gap is because the DOD and the VA could communicate better and they should both feel equally as responsible and they should feel that obligation to, to make sure that that program is as well-developed as possible to ensure that we are not failing service members who are transitioning to become veterans. And in reality, that's all of us because all service members will be veterans one day. And I really do think TAP is a focal point that if improved and if worked correctly, and I have many ideas, but I'll step off my box unless you guys want to go down that route. um, Really, really improving TAP could could make a difference for veterans, Could could make sure that the veterans are stepping off into whatever happens after the service on the right foot versus the the wrong foot. I'll just leave it at that. I just feel like there's a lot of thing, ways to improve TAP. But that's one of the things we were working on at the House Committee of Veteran Affairs. I appreciate your work on that, Tahina, because I've seen it and I've heard it across the 13 years that I've been in. And I even had to go through TAP when I transitioned from the Marine Corps and took a commission with the Coast Guard. And it was 
well, you only have to do two days. This isn't relevant. You just need your piece of paper at the end of the day. And sitting in a room with transitioning service members, you could see the fear in some of their faces. And then others, I I don't need this information. I already have other plans of what I'm doing. And really, I completely agree with you that it needs kind of an overhaul and to impress on leadership that it's not a check in the box to get your DD-214. There's a lot of information and the service members need to know, oh, no, I'm going to TAPS for a week. It is. And then I'm going to come back and that way I can put it on my checkout sheet and go get my DD-214. That the resources, if really we you know, can get a good dive down and open up that program to really service our transitioning service members, to set them up for success and empower them to be active members in our veteran communities and different avenues within the veteran communities. Like you said, they shouldn't all be siloed, but you can be race, gender profile, whatever. You can be in multiple veteran roles and be an advocate and have a voice and really be the voice of change. And I think it's starting there. And Amanda, going back to what you were saying, being a military spouse and a military veteran, my husband's a Marine Corps veteran, and he's a male military spouse. And they look at him and go, oh, he's a veteran. Well, no, he's actually, and some people, oh, well, spouses, and they talk about, and the wives. And you you sit there and, and changing the verbiage that we use to say the service member and their wife. It's service member and spouse because we have male spouses and being more cognizant about that you know, when MOA has the currently serving advisory committee but then we also work in tandem with the currently serving spouses committee and the two years I was on it was great because we did have a male spouse on there and bringing his voice in but none of them none of the spouses were veterans and I would like to see more diversity with that but then again it's the candidates that apply for it. So getting that word out there that, you know, we can be better at having our voice heard. And yes, I agree with you, Ginger. It can be exhausting trying to balance, and I'm still balancing being a service member and a good leader and steward to my branch of service and the DOD and DHS across as a whole. And then also making sure that being out there and any way that I can to, I can't necessarily always be boots on the ground when it comes to the change of peace, but when it comes to advocacy and having our voice heard and being a representation of even just a small representation of women in the military, then feel good at the end of the day. I think uh, Rachel mentioned something that I, I think I wanted to kind of highlight or speak on was regarding, you know, male spouses and being in a being dual mill couple. I'm also a dual mill couple. My husband's a Navy uh, commander. And I just wanted to take a moment to give a shout out because I know we're here and I'm sure people who are, let's just say, are critics are saying, you know, we're on the woman's soapbox and they use that really quickly to kind of write us off and write what we stand for. So I just want to take a moment and give a shout out to all our allies, including male allies who stand up for us and support us every single day because I think that's equally as important to to shout out. And I also think that it's important to recognize because I think what's more powerful, women advocating for women, absolutely 100% wouldn't change it. But I do think there's something to be said for male allies or allies of any sorts that are standing up and 
defending and advocating for others. I think that sends a more powerful message because I think people are very quick to write us off because they're like, okay, well, yeah, you're a woman veteran. So you're going to try to stand up for women vets, right? Which I think is powerful, but I think it's, it's also um, cool to see allies who are fighting for us when I guess you can say they don't really have to. I'm just going to add on to that real quick. We are standing on our soapboxes and we've earned the right to stand on our soapboxes. And like me, I'm not going to apologize for standing on my soapbox. And I, I think that's one of the problems that we have as women veterans. Everybody is always expecting for us to come broken, come in pieces and to come apologize. I'm not apologizing for anything like that little hashtag I use. Time's up. Like, time's up. It's time for us to get the respect that we have earned. You can't say on one hand, women veterans are not going to the VFW, going here and going there. And on the other hand, we're not strong enough to come and testify and be taken seriously. Like, when you really look at the whole diversity and inclusion piece, you know, I'm Black. I check Black and I also check Latina because I hail from Honduras. My, my whole family's from Honduras, right? But it's like, OK, what what difference does it make? I would just rather identify me personally as a woman, black, white and different, whatever. But I, I think as a country, when it comes to women veterans in particular, we are missing the mark. And when you talk about the whole transition piece, we are missing the mark. That terror or that fear that Rachel was talking about, it's real. It, this is my point. And then I'm, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Not that I not that I'm apologizing. I'm just going to do it because our time is almost up. But nevertheless, OK, so I've been in this veteran space since about 2009. We've got to stop looking at veterans as data, right? The only time, and this is just probably over the top, but the only time we really look at veterans as people is when they commit suicide. And by that time, it's over. We're dealing with people. We're not dealing with numbers. you know. And, and that's what I bring to the table because I'm boots on the ground. I get the phone calls. I hear the cries. I see these women running out in the middle of the night from an abusive spouse. It don't matter if it was a hundred of them or if it was one of them. If it was one of them running out, that's one too many. And, and that's why I've never been a whole um, like data freak. But now we do have the Women Veterans Institute and we do have our survey that we're doing that, that, that's going great. But that's for something different. But but I think until, and this is not for anybody here, it's like the, the, the leader's in the veteran space, you know, that always have the answers, but have never been boots on the ground. You're looking at this data. We're looking at people. Yeah. Ginger, when you say that, I think it's funny because there's been a few conversations I've had the honor to be part of where I'm trying to tell them those personal stories when I'm advocating for either a said policy change or, and I also am one to be like, you know, I'm telling you because this is what's happening and because I'm seeing it. And it is very frustrating to be confronted with where's the data, right? And so part of me, I'm totally with you. I totally agree that it gets to a point where it's like, it doesn't matter what the data says. Like we're telling you this is happening, but it's also, I recognized through my advocacy, through the women initiative um, team in the department of the air force. And also on my time, my very short time on the Hill, I am recognizing that we also have to try to speak their language. And so part of me, at first, I was very frustrated to Ginger's point. I, it doesn't matter what the data is saying. What matters is what's actually happening on the ground. Then I kind of turned a corner, I guess you can say, and I'm like, okay, they want data. I'm going to give them data. And so we just met them where they were and off the bat would present numbers numbers that would reflect, we spoke their language. I almost view data as like a different language. Like, okay, you want to get, you want to talk data, let's talk data. And then we'll back it up with personal anecdotes to kind of put the nice bow on it. Because it is those personal stories where you realize the negative impacts that all these policies have if they are not done correctly and if they're not reaching the right veterans. That's what 
a big part of what we do with MOA and our role when we do our, when we were actually, and even still on our Zoom calls with our advocacy and action was giving that face and you know, being able to say, you know, that we're not asking you to put your name on a bill, you know, piece of paper. There's, you know, some language in there you may not understand. Let me give you real life stories. Let me give you examples. Let me tell you about fellow service members that are being negatively impacted and try to put the so what and really proud to be part of that because it is, there's the data side of it, but being able to have that voice and give the so what impact and help put that bow on it. Um, has been very rewarding. And I think that goes with why I wanted to do this panel, because I wanted to show how important it is to get involved through sharing your story, through volunteering, through working on Capitol Hill. If you can do anything that even filling out the Blue Star Family Survey or any other women veteran survey or anything that you get that can help change and shape policy, it's so important that you have your voice heard because without our voices, they don't hear our voices and they don't know our stories. So we're running out of time, but does anyone want to close it out with one final thought? I just want to say thank you, Amanda, for putting on this this podcast. I thought it was very powerful, very enlightening. And I think you should really do more of them because everybody had something really unique to bring to the table. But at the end of the day, we're all singing the same song. Like women veterans, we want our voices heard. We want to be taken seriously. We serve this country just like our brothers did. Thank you. That was the perfect way to end it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in, joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military and if you enjoyed women of the military podcast please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service